Let's skip ahead. That's well stated. When the truth kills the sale, what's that mean? Once in a while, the truth kills the sale. This is about selling the idea to yourself, too. If I can't tell the truth and still make the sale, then I've got to find a way to change that truth. Yeah, Michael, you know, I really don't know much about marketing. Yeah, Michael, I'm really expensive. Would you like to hire me? You know, if I can't find a way to tell the truth and still make the sale, I have to change the truth. I have to become more of an expert. I have to change my prices. So I really believe that it's a great deal I'm giving the customer. It doesn't have to be the best possible deal. It just has to be a deal that I can believe in. So when the truth kills the sale, you've got to change that truth. And there are a lot of ways of doing that. And I wouldn't suggest changing prices. Mm-hmm. That's the, one of the last things I do. Because then you're just selling price. Somebody can always beat you on price. I'd suggest changing the value. Throwing in a little bit more, giving a little extra, becoming more of an expert. So you can tell the truth. You can brag about whatever the negatives might be and still close the sale. Here's another section. Tell, sell the whole story. What's that saying? The more you tell, the more you sell? Interesting. That's an old sales and marketing thing, and there's a certain amount of truth to that. When I was a kid, I was one of these kids that sold everything. From the time I was five, I sold greeting cards door to door, you know, to win a bike or whatever it is you supposedly earned at those. Were you number one then? Yeah. Well, it was annoying. You know, you go to the neighbor's house and you're banging the I did it too. Yeah. And so you know the job. Now, when I was 16, the first real job I had was selling magazine subscriptions. You know, they take a bunch of us kids and they ship us over to some distant neighborhood and they set us loose on the poor souls that live there. And the first time I was just, hi, I'm Barry, one of the boys in the neighborhood. You know, I was Barry and I was a boy and I was in the neighborhood, but I uh, didn't live there. Not the way to sell. I shouldn't have known better. Anyway, in the neighborhoods where we work, we sometimes encounter people we didn't want to waste our valuable 16-year-old time pitching because they'd be drunk or they'd be underage or they'd be crazy or maybe it was pretty clear they'd never passed the credit check because our magazine packages were like... 360 bucks, and this was back in the mid-60s, so they're really expensive. So in order to get rid of one of these people as quickly as possible, we simply had to ask them one question, which was, would you like to buy some magazines? Exactly what we were selling. Nobody ever said yes, right? Nobody even said maybe. Nobody even asked us what magazines we were selling. They just said no and walked away. And a lot of people, when they're selling their services, in effect... Ask their customers, would they like to buy some magazines? Would you like some marketing consulting? I'm doing marketing consulting now. You know, I think I can really help you out. Are you interested? Mm-hmm. No. Of course you're not interested. you got to tell them. you got to sell them the whole story. Now, the problem is, that means, to one extent or another, you got to do some kind of a presentation after you do your fact-finding, after you've established interest, you do your fact-finding. you got to do some kind of a presentation. People say, well, I don't want to do a presentation. Well, what's the presentation? A presentation is just all the information you want these people to have before they make that decision whether or not to do business with you. If you can't give them that information, you're not going to give them the right decision. So you need to have to make this presentation, and it shouldn't be a, okay, now I'm going to rate for 15 minutes like I'm doing right here. It should be a conversation. Now, I'm sure you know it. Give me the pitch when you knocked on the door to sell that package of magazines. You You started out, hi, I'm Barry, one of the boys in the neighborhood. We're taking a survey to see which was the most popular magazines. And I'd give them a card, and they'd check on the card which magazines they liked. And then I'd go into my pitch about how I was developing a route in the neighborhood. Well, the magazines were mailed to them. Nobody was ever developing a route. It really wasn't the way to sell. That's a great story. I can totally relate to that. I have cut lawns and knocked on doors. I knocked yeah. on a lot of doors myself. Yeah, I did that, too. What I, I used to do, it, so I just, and then I'd sell the jobs to other kids. There you I, go. I didn't like mowing the lawn, but I liked getting the jobs. That's great. I'm going to move on a little bit here. Becoming an expert witness. 
goes on the same lines as what we were talking about before. Now, expert witnessing, if any of your people have ever done any expert witnessing, it's a really great thing. You get to sit up in this little front throne, right, in front of the entire room of people, and they hang on your every word, and they even transcribe it for posterity. The problem is that after the attorney on your side tosses you all the softball questions he's going to toss you, then the attorney on the other side gets his chance, which is the cross-examination. And during the cross-examination, this guy tries to get you to contradict everything you've said before. Now, the tendency as an expert is to contest every one of the points he's trying to get you to make, right? I mean, after all, you're the expert, you've staked out your position, you've delivered the word of God, and this guy's attacking it. So by extension, he's attacking you, maybe even attacking God, right? Right. But the first thing the attorneys on your side will tell you is that if you contest every one of the points he's trying to get you to make, you're going to lose all credibility as an impartial expert. Now... Are you impartial? Everybody in the courtroom knows you're being paid big bucks by the side you're on. But the more you appear to be an instrument of objective credibility, an impartial expert, the more effective the points that you need to make will be. So when people are selling, when people are promoting themselves, they always want to present themselves as an expert witness. They make their best possible case. I used to say, hey, I don't want you to forget. I'm on commission here. The more you spend, the more I make. Now let me tell you why you need to be spending more and making me more money. So I make my best possible case, and I don't pretend not to be an advocate if I'm an advocate. I don't have to. And then I grant the opposition, which is not the person I'm trying to sell. That's never the opposition. But the opposition is the doubting Thomas in the mind of that person. I grant that doubting Thomas his legitimate points. When he's right, he's right. If I can say to the customer, you're absolutely right about that, all our cameras failed on that, and what did we do about it? absolutely right. My rates are expensive. If I can say that, I've granted him his legitimate points, something he knows is right anyway, and all the rest of my points gain massive credibility, rather than the pretending that I'm offering him the only perfect service that's existed since the beginning of time. All comes down to credibility and believability. All comes down to credibility and believability. And the best way to be credible is to tell the truth. Now tell me, how did you get this philosophy? Is this something that's evolved through your experience? Absolutely. You know, at first you're afraid now, I've done so many sales calls, so much marketing in my life, that at first you're afraid to bring out these points. And then as you get more and more confident, you realize, hey, I can say these things. It not only doesn't hurt, it helps. And if it hurts, isn't it much better to get out this problem now? If a person's got a problem with whatever issue you're trying to hide, isn't it better to get it on the table now than to leave them to discover it later when you're not around and you're going to have no influence over the situation? So it's much easier to deal with these things now even if it does create a problem, and if you do it right, it doesn't create a problem. It increases your credibility. Great. Sex, rejection, and several assorted buts. What's this about? That's a catch-all chapter. Sex. One of the things I say when I see people losing attention my keynote, which, of course, I never do, towards the end of the keynote, one of the things I say is the next section can be either about sex or it can be about dating. And everybody's eyes light up. Sometimes I say dating because in some parts of the country they might not want me to say sex. So when I say dating, only one eye lights up, but it gets their attention. So what I tell people is when I go out there, is your business, whether it's marketing, consulting, or any other business, is kind of like sex. If you're not enjoying it, you're probably not doing it right. You know, Warren Buffett said they worried about people who were doing something in their lives that they didn't enjoy, that hoped that in the future they'd be able to do something that they really liked. He said... Of putting off sex to your old age. Mm-hmm. A good idea. That's the idea of enjoyment. Now, the sorry but thing, I just read an article about this in my newsletter, and I think it's in my book, No Lie, too. 
story about a situation where I had with a customer one time. And I walked in there, and I was pitching him whatever I was pitching him. I gave him all the reasons why he should buy the service. And it was right. He should have bought the thing. And I gave him all the reasons why it was an excellent value. And I was right about that. And I gave him all the reasons why he should buy it now. And I was right about that. But he said, you know, I really got to think about it. I'm really not ready to make a decision right now. And I said, well, you know, I haven't given you the best reason at this point. And he said, well, what's the best reason? I said, because getting it right now is the quickest way to get my sorry butt out of your office. And he said, sold. That's great. So when I started telling people that story around the office, it became known as Barry Marr's sorry butt clothes. That's like Zig Ziglar's. You know, when I first started in sales, I studied all his clothes. And Zig Ziglar's, when they said, well, when I get around to it, I'll do it. And he had a round, you know, the round to, well, here's a round to it, and now you got it, let's do it. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Humor is a great way to make your point, and it's a great marketing tool. It can be a great sales tool if you use it effectively. It also be a disaster if you use it ineffectively. Let's go to Closing Made Simple. Give it a shot. And that is simply trying to get through all the miasma of possible closes that the sales trainers sometimes teach. And I teach them, too, when I'm doing sales training. There are thousands and thousands of different closes. People always say, which one's the best? None of them are the best. Which one works at this particular time is the best one? And there are thousands of them. And I tend to go with the assumed close, where you just go ahead and you go through until somebody stops you. And if they don't stop you, they you close on them. And that's fine. But one of the closes that works best for me is after I ask for the order. There's a sales myth that says once you ask for the order, whoever speaks next loses. Now, this is a cliche which I hate for a couple of reasons. Number one, because it implies that if I get the sale that the person I'm selling it to is a loser and that if he doesn't buy it from me then I'm a loser I would like to think that we both are succeeding if I make the sale if I'm selling the right product at the right price to the right person at the right time hopefully he's going to win by buying the product and he's going to lose if he doesn't do it so I really hate that idea the second thing is that it isn't necessarily true the inexperienced salespeople very often say you know my marketing is so services, it's blah, 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 it's going to be this much, this much, this much. Can we get started today? Or whatever. They ask their closing question. Now, what they do very often, because they don't want to hear the answer, or they're afraid that the answer is going to be no, is they start talking again right away. And they never give the customer a chance to say yes or no. And that's called talking over the close, and it's a very, very bad idea. Because right away, the customer sees that you're not expecting to buy it. And he starts thinking of all those reasons, even if he's about to say yes, all the reasons why he shouldn't buy it. But if you ask your closing question, whatever it may be, would you like to start on Tuesday, would you like to start the week after that, and then you wait, and then you pause, and he's thinking it over. One of the most effective closes I have ever found is while he's thinking it over, and he's puzzling his mind, I just say, give it a shot. It is astonishing how often that kind of thing works, just a little nudge, if it's done correctly, if it's done after he's had some time or she has had some time to think about it. And if it's done with the complete confidence that you know that the best possible deal that you're offering this person, a great deal. How about the walk-back close? Walk-back close is another one of those things that the salespeople are told they never do. After you make the sale, you walk out and you don't come back in because he might be having buyer's remorse or she might be having buyer's remorse. And you walk back in the door because you've forgotten your hat or this, that, or the other thing. And the first thing they say is, oh, you know, I've been thinking about that, and maybe we shouldn't start this now. Maybe we should think about it and give it in a couple months or something. So salespeople very often are afraid to talk to the customer again after they've made the sale for a while, at least until it's, you know, it's solid and they've cashed the check or whatever. 
if they sold the product correctly, if they closed full disclosure, if they bragged about the negatives and gotten everything on the table, there's absolutely no reason why they shouldn't be able to walk in immediately. One of the things that I would sometimes do when I was selling is I would get back to the car after walking into the merchant or retailer, and I would think, you know, he bought whatever he bought, but he really should have got the next size up, the next program up. It would have worked a lot better for him. I really gave up on that. I took the easy sale, what he was willing to buy, rather than what he really needed. And then I would walk back in, because it would drive me nuts. I would walk back in right away. I'd go back in and I'd say, you know, I blew it when I was talking to you. Obviously, I didn't do a very good job of explaining that to you because, you know, you're getting this and this and this, but what you really need is blah, blah, blah. It's astonishing how often I ended up selling them. They appreciate it. They appreciated that. And if I didn't, I don't think I ever can think of a case where walking back cost me to sell. Tell me, do you have a guarantee with your consulting service and your speaking engagements? No, and I'll tell you why I don't. I used to work with a telemarketing company, and they would sell my consulting services when they didn't have anything else going on, and I'd pay them a percentage. And I offered a guarantee because I'm absolutely sure, particularly in this case of what I was selling, that this was going to save people and make them many, many, many times what they were spending. And all the time I was doing that, I had one guy who asked for his money back. Now, when he asked for his money back, he absolutely denigrated the product. He lied. He said... You didn't do what you promised you'd do, blah, 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 blah. I wanted you to do this, that, and the other thing. I did exactly what I promised to do. He just wanted and I offered to redo it and give him all these other services free. Now, we were talking about a small amount of money here. It wasn't the point. I wanted him to be a satisfied customer. Again, he threatened this, that, and the other thing, blah, blah. He was sure I wasn't going to give him his money back, which I was happy to do. Mm-hmm. I wanted him to be happy. He basically sold himself because of that guarantee on the fact that I'd done a lousy job. And I was unscrupulous, and I was just that, this, that, or the other thing. So we could justify getting his money back, because he already had the consultation. Then he went ahead, and it was in the yellow pages, so I could see it. I went ahead in the next year's directory and did exactly what I had told him to do in the consultation. Sure, you're always going to get people like that. I was so irritated by that that I said, I'm dropping the guarantee, because I don't want people to sell themselves against my services. And that's why I don't do that. I don't want to give people a reason to profit by having a bad idea. It may not be something I stay with. I may change my mind on that. Yeah, it's probably an emotional thing. I mean, it really was. You're always going to get people like that. No. You're always going to get people like that. I've only gotten one in the 20 years I've been consulting, but it was enough that I said, I've never had anybody ask for their money back. You know, somebody did, I'd probably give it to them. But I thought I was giving him a reason to be negative about my product by offering him the chance to get his money back. I'm sure he felt perfectly good about what he was doing, but then he changed his mind and did exactly what I told him to do. Does this ring a bell? Hiding the rotten rhino. Yeah, hiding the rotten rhino is about bragging about the negatives. There are negatives in every situation. No matter what we do, we're never going to be able to get rid of all of them like we've been talking about. And there's a couple of ways you can present negatives. You can present them like what I call hidden rhino sales reps. Now, what's a hidden rhino sales rep? If there's a rotting rhinoceros in the well that provides the drinking water of that country estate they're trying to sell you, they're going to do their very best to try and keep that potential negative hidden. If you mention the nasty smell, you notice they don't ever smell anything. And if you're persistent, they're going to do something to change the subject to distract you. This in sales is known as the, hey, look, there's Elvis stratagem, right? Mm-hmm. Now, hiding the rotting rhino can get the sale. There's no question about that. It's why so many inferior managers, so many inferior marketing people, so many inferior advertising people, so many inferior salespeople use it and use it religiously. But hidden rhinos have an annoying way of floating back to the surface, usually sooner rather than later, and the company or the salesperson that doesn't acknowledge it is going to lose all credibility and they're going to lose the sale. So you never want to do that. 
What advice would you give to these marketing consultants in ways and a couple techniques on how to control the sales calls? Bingo. And that's exactly right. Control the sales call. Now, how do you control the sales call? You don't control the sales call by talking over the customer. You don't control the sales call by ignoring what they're saying. You control it by asking questions. Okay, to start off with. First, you control it by creating an interest-creating remark, which gets his attention or her attention. Then you ask the right questions and control it that way. Then it goes back to the idea of telling and selling the whole story. I've got a presentation. Okay, now my presentation is not going to look like the kind of speeches I've been giving during this interview. It's going to look and sound like a conversation because it has to be interactive. But I know exactly all the points I want to make in that conversation. The potential customer does not know the points I want to make. And he's not going to follow my outline for getting all that information in there. So he's going to go off on tangents. I'm going to deal with that tangent in whatever way I choose to deal with it. Either answer it or say, oh, I'm getting there. And if you ask me about price, I might say, oh, that's the best part. I'm getting to that in just a moment. But let me talk about it. And then I go right back into the point in the presentation that I'd left. Because I know these points. I have them in the order in my head that I want to cover them. And every time he takes me on a tangent, I deal with that tangent right away, either by answering it, never by ignoring it, or by dealing with it. Oh, I'll get to that in just a moment. Let me cover this. Something like that. And then I go right back into the point in the presentation where I left off. So by the end, by the time I've got through that, I've gotten in all the information I need to get in. Now, once in a while, you'll encounter somebody who's a real driver and will not let you go through your points. This on talking about what he wants to talk about and controlling the conversation. Now, obviously, you can't fight with a customer. You don't win if you fight with a customer or a prospect. So you deal with every point he insists upon dealing on, and then you work in your points gradually during the course of the conversation, whatever way you can. Usually, by the end of the conversation, you've either created enough interest, you can get back into your presentation in the order you want to do it, or you can work in your own points just in the course of the conversation. You've worked with small businesses and medium businesses, and certainly looking at your list of clients, you've worked with very large businesses. What would you tell a marketing consultant if he did start working with the larger businesses, what he can expect in the difference between the small mom-and-pop owner and the larger business with maybe more layers? That's exactly right. It's more layers. But what you may find out when you're dealing with a larger company is except for issues of getting a decision made on a timely basis, which can take forever, or getting payments out, which can sometimes take a while, is that you might actually be dealing with a number of small companies. A lot of times when I work with a company, like I think did a presentation fairly recently for Merck, and I wasn't dealing with Merck altogether. The entire Merck company, Merck Pharmaceuticals, which is probably 30, 40, 50,000 people, maybe more than that, I was dealing with the marketing people at Merck. And so that's one branch within Merck. The nice thing about that is I can also sell my services to the salespeople within Merck, to the PhDs that advise the salespeople within Merck, to all these different groups. Actually, a large company can be a community of small companies within there, all of which are opportunities for selling your services to. How do you charge as far as your fees? Do you want the money up front? Do you get it after your presentation? What have you found works and doesn't work in reference to getting the money? I have never lost a penny from a customer in 18 years. So I don't really worry about it that much, but I don't like to do billing and I don't like to wait for my money. The way it works in speaking engagements is standard. They pay you half up front to control the date, and then they pay you half at or before the presentation. What do you do? I do both. I mean, they pay half up front to control the date, and then the second half is due at the time of the presentation. Before before, it? Or before. At or before is the way we phrase it. Now, what happens is 
sometimes people forget or they don't have the check, and I am not going to go up to the president of America, you know, right. say, hey, give me my money for the last half. They're good for it. I'm not worried about it. Mm-hmm. So in those cases, we'll bill them. Plus, my expenses will be billed later anyway. With a new client, that's the way we work. With an old client, I might not collect any money up front. It's just trust, because I know they're going to pay me the money, and, you know, it's not a big deal. It just depends on their situation. Sometimes they want to pay it up front because of their, the way they do their bookkeeping. I usually don't have a problem dealing with an old client. And how about you sign a contract, a letter of agreement? We sign a letter of agreement for those things. Now, usually for new consultation clients, I get all the money up front, depending on the size of the consultation. If it's a small consultation with a small business, I'll probably get all the money up front. Certainly for the yellow page consultations, I always get all the money up front. It's just easier. It's not that much money to talk about. Well, you know what? We have covered a lot. This has been wonderful. Now, let me ask you this. If someone wants you for any kind of speaking engagements, consultative services, what's the best way to get in touch with you? Tell me a little bit about some of the services you provide. Okay. Well, we do all kinds of management and even marketing consultations. Speaking, keynotes, communication, management, sales are my specialties, obviously the kind of things we've talked about today. You can get in touch with me through the website, www.barrymar.com, which is B-A-R-R-Y-M-A-H-E-R.com. It's also www.fillingtheglass.com. Or reach me at 760-962-9872. Talk to me or my assistant, Steve Wilson. There, this has been wonderful. We were all over the place, but we covered a lot of content. It was fun, Michael. I really appreciate it. Thanks. Have a great day. Okay, you Bye. Too. Hey, this is Michael Senoff. I really hope you enjoyed this interview I did with Barry Marr. We covered a lot of information, and certainly this is the type of interview you want to listen to over and over again. Feel free to print the transcripts out and highlight, mess them up, take some notes, and use this guy's advice. He's been out in the field doing consulting for many, many years, and I really enjoyed doing it, and I hope you've gotten some good value out of it. So stay tuned. I'll be interviewing more expert consultants in the field of sales, marketing, consulting, and other related topics that are going to help you build your consulting business. And I hope you enjoyed it. Talk to you later. If you want to get in touch with Barry Marr, please email me at michael at hardtofindseminars.com. Did you know I do audio interviews? I bet you could tell by now that I do audio interviews with experts on marketing, advertising, direct mail, list management, you name it. My interviews can build the value of your information products. My interviews can enhance the sales of a website. My interviews can make you famous. If you want someone who has an intimate knowledge of the direct mail business and understands the questions to ask, understands how to dig out the scoop, understands how to produce, develop, and create a compelling audio product, you want to talk to me. I promise you, if you've got a product you're selling and you want to bring life and build value into it, please contact me.